If you spent any time on boats, you know <clears throat> that boats uh, out on the open water don't stay in one place by themselves. Uh, th- as currents flow, they push boats from where they once were and, and put them somewhere else. Even if currents are, are mild or soft, uh, eventually they can still carry a floating boat away from its intended place. So, you have to take measures to keep a boat where it needs to be. Right? You have to drop anchor and tether the boat where it belongs. And Jude knew that believers are like boats. We are subject to currents of false teaching and temptation that push us from where we belong. Left to ourselves, left to ourselves, we would be blown headlong into error and sin. We are not strong, typically, and can be carried into our temptations and led away from the truth if we are not firmly grounded in God's Word. Now, Jude wrote to a church that was plagued by false teachers who had crept in and had begun teaching contrary to the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And they distorted God's grace and rejected Christ's lordship in order to justify their own godless desires for sensuality. That's very clear throughout the, the chapter, the book. They abused their role as leaders to serve their own desires while neglecting to care properly for the people of this church. Now, knowing that the Christian life is difficult enough without poor leaders leading us astray, Jude wrote to this church about the need to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, about our need to persevere in the truth revealed by God rather than something invented by our imagination. And so most of Jude's letter outlined the dangers of these false teachers and what they had done and what they were like. And as a good pastor, though, Jude did not simply describe the danger and leave people in it. Rather, he provided solutions, helpful advice about what to do. And in in verses 17 to 23, Jude gave this advice about what believers should do as they bore up under the burden of false teachers, false leaders with false teaching in their midst. And we can see two pieces of application here, one of which we've considered already. Uh, So let's highlight that. Let's just see what's going on there. So verses, verse 17 and verse 20, both begin, but you, beloved. That's that's the, the word order in, in the Greek. That combination is... I, I know that they sort of moved beloved down the line in verse 17. But you, beloved, begins both of these verses. Jude's first application, as we saw previously then, was, but you, beloved, must remember what the apostles said. Despite all, the point there is despite all that the false teachers were doing and saying, the church must tie themselves to what God had revealed to his apostles. 
They must be a remembering people, as we must be a remembering people. The second application that we consider today is, but you, beloved, in contrast to the false teachers and that description, but you, beloved, keep yourselves in the love of God. Jude exhorts us with a twofold contrast between those who are devoid of the Spirit and causing divisions. And first, we must be a remembering people who cling to what God has said. And second, we must not be like boats pushed by the currents, but must be anchored in God's love. And so today, we're going to think about how we might be anchored boats, fixed in one single place, God's love. And the first part of verses 20 to 23, that's our section for this morning, tells us how to keep ourselves in the love of God. And then the second part tells us how to treat those who are trying to lead us astray from it, like the false teachers did. So the main point, the main point is that we keep ourselves in God's love by leaning on God's mercy and gifts that come through Christ. We keep ourselves in God's love by leaning on God's mercy and gifts that come through Christ. Now we'll think about that in three points, our requirement, our resources, and our response. So first, our requirement. If someone handed you a photograph of a collapsed building and then told you that it was your job to repair it, you're likely going to have two important, at least two, but two pretty important questions. What happened? Why is this building collapsed? And how? How am I supposed to fix this? This is a disaster. You need background information and you need steps to take to make things better. Right? We find ourselves in a similar situation as we re- read Jude's letter. Uh, he has handed us a literary photograph of a collapsed building. The false teachers, too, are an absolute disaster, as we have considered for many weeks now. Throughout most of this letter, then, Jude has told us what happened. He's given us that background information. These godless teachers have crept into the church and tried to lead people away from the truth. That is what happened. Now, we have that other question. How am I supposed to fix this? And Jude informs his readers that their job, their required task, is to keep themselves in the love of God. In in light of what Jude has written about these false teachers, though, this seems like a really daunting task, does it not? Even our leaders can't do this. The people teaching us, this seems like trying to rebuild a collapsed building with no advice to tell me just to keep myself in God. If they were taught poorly by their leaders, they need help then to keep themselves in God's love. And thankfully, Jude provided that advice so that his readers, as well as God's people today, 
have knowledge of how to keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, sometimes I think, I think that's, yeah, there are times that we overlook kind of crucially important things in the scripture because we don't pay attention, we don't notice for various reasons what the main point is. There are lots of points in the scripture. There are lots of points in the book of Jude. And there are lots of points even in our verses today. But we need to digest what is the main point and what is supporting. Now this is easier kind of in, in original languages. Greek makes main verbs, leading verbs, distinct from supporting verbs. But that doesn't always carry across as obviously in English. And that's essentially what I'm after. So, so in verses 20 and 21, the leading exhortation, the, the main verb is keep yourself. Keep. Keep yourselves in the love of God. This is our requirement. That's what we need to do. Keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, surrounding that central exhortation, though, are three other points that tell us how to accomplish that. It might be easy to think that as we read through those verses that there are kind of four separate exhortations in verses 20 and 21. But that's not the case. I don't think that's the case. Rather, there is this one central admonition to keep yourself in the love of God surrounded by three ways to accomplish that. And before we consider those three means, though, I actually think we need to pause and just reflect upon something that's that's really important in light of everything we've seen in this letter. I think we need to mark God's kindness. Right? We saw back in verse 8 how the false teachers pretended to have uh, revelation from God through their dreams about how they were allowed to live. Even if that were true, which it wasn't, it would be difficult for Christians then and for Christians now, right, if we had to wait for God to send us dreams to figure out how to live the Christian life. And it would be hard on us as we wonder about if we're correct in thinking that one dream is from God compared to another. Is this this a a God-given dream or am I just stressed out or did I eat something bad last night? And God has not left us in that dilemma. Whereas the false teachers claimed to have these revelatory dreams that fade quickly and, and could not be seen by everyone, right? All that all that the rest of the church has to go on is, well, I'm telling you this is the case if I claim to have some dream. In contrast to that, God put his directions in writing. Right? Whereas false teachers made this church dependent on them as individuals, as their leaders, as the source of of directions from God, supposedly, Jude sent them a copy of what God actually said. Here it is. Everyone can read this. 
you can keep this and refer back to it. You don't need me there. He put it, he put it in on paper, in plain words, so that God's people are, are indeed not left guessing about how to pursue God. And so, we need to mark. God is kind, merciful, and good to His people because He does not leave us guessing. Right? Although Christ, the Christian life does require a lot of wisdom, I get that, about our particular decisions. What job am I going to do? You know, am I, am I going to live here? Am I going to date this person? Am I going to get married? Am I going to do whatever? You know, it takes a lot of wisdom. I get that. And it takes a lot of wisdom to maneuver throughout the various challenges of life. And yet, yet God has made the general principles of, of how we can know His will or what His will is for our lives plainly known through the apostles and prophets. But He's just told us, written it down. Here's what you need. You don't have to wait on anyone or guess. And so here, our requirement is to keep ourselves in the love of God, though. And yet God has told us how to do that. And so we come to our next point. Our resources. Right? The Jude's readers were in a bad situation. Being taught by false teachers who were leading them astray. The currents were strong. And purposefully uh, intending to push them away from where they needed to be. They were boats being battered around on the open sea. But God did not leave them without guidance about how to keep themselves moored in the love of God. Exactly where they belong. And as we consider how we must repair that collapsed building, right? as we consider how we must anchor ourselves in the love of God, we should look at the steps that Jude left to guide us. Jude not only told us our requirement, but he also told us our resources for the task. So the first one, is so, so there's three of them here in verses 20 and 21. So the first one, first step to take, the first resource we have is by building yourselves up on your most holy faith. I know that, I know ESV says in, but the idea here is that our faith, we build ourselves up on our most holy faith because your faith, that once for all delivered faith, is the foundation upon which we build. This particular point then in Jude, this is not about learning new things about your faith. Okay, not here. There are other places that teach that. But this is not about that. The point here is that as we go forward in the Christian life, it must rest upon the foundation of what has been delivered through the apostles. And we start with the premise of Christ, right? Christ who redeemed us, set us free from the curse of the law, but also freed us from the power of sin and enables us to serve Him. We start with that foundation. We do not build the Christian life next to that, but upon that foundation. I've been on a sandwich kick.
recently um, <laughs> for lunch. Uh, when, when you're making a sandwich, uh, you put down a piece of bread, right? And then what do you do? You, you put whatever you want in the middle on top of it. And, and then you close it off with another slice of bread. You don't put down, a, like, it would be really silly for me to put down a piece of bread and then stack chicken and lettuce next to it as if that's going to get me anywhere. You put your toppings on top of your piece of bread. And the same is true with the Christian life, right? We build on the foundation of Christ. Not next to Christ. We don't have something else. Not apart from Christ. We don't have something different from Christ. We don't work out what to do as if that's supplementary to what we know about Christ. We build upon Jesus Christ. No one else can support us. Why would we try to construct our Christian life and then tack it on to Jesus? He is the one who upholds us. We lean upon what we confess about the Savior, about Christ, building on that foundation that He is our Redeemer and so also is our merciful Lord. Christ is the anchor of our soul to keep our little boats from being pushed away. This is one of the reasons why uh, we rely as a church not, not just on on the scripture, not just on the scripture, but we have confessions, the catechisms that digest the meaning of scripture, right? They're not, they're not an authority in addition to scripture. They summarize scripture's teaching. Why do we do that? Because we want easy ways to hand down the truth upon which we need to build, right? That's, that's one resource you have to do this. See what other Christians have said. You don't have to do this alone. The truth has been handed down to you. And hopefully made simpler than, than a huge book that's summarized for you. And we can rely on the wisdom of others. But we have other resources. We have, we have the recourse to Building upon our most holy faith, not, not faith as our act of believing, but the once for all delivered faith, right? As a, as a set of belief, not an action, but a set of beliefs. Building upon that foundation. Our next resource is by praying in the Holy Spirit. Our catechism was prayer. As a, as an ordinary means of grace. And, and prayer is a means of grace partly because praying in the Holy Spirit is a way to keep ourselves in the love of God, as we're instructed here to do. I, I think we tend to believe that prayer is a way to change God. As, as if as we pray, we think we need to convince Him to provide for our needs. Now, I don't think we would say that, but I think that that's kind of our maybe default assumption or kind of background thoughts as we pray. And we need to realize that as, as a really relevant observation for what we're talking about here, that, 
the only one who genuinely changes in prayer is us. God's good to his people. You asking him that doesn't make him committed to that. So what does happen? God changes us. Right? So prayer is a means of grace, right? uh, a tool by which God channels into his people. Prayer is a means of grace to accomplish his will. He uses means, but also to shape us, to change us. When we seek God in prayer, he molds us more and more into the image of Jesus. As you encounter your God in prayer, you cannot but be changed. And as God changes us through prayer, he anchors us where we need to be in the love of God. So, we have the resource of building ourselves up on our most holy faith. We have the resource of praying in the Holy Spirit, relying on the Spirit to help us pray, right? And our third resource, verse 21, for keeping ourselves in the love of God is by waiting on the mercy of Christ that leads to, that results in everlasting life. I wonder how many of you, when we started this sermon, and uh, you know, the central exhortation is keep yourselves in the love of God. I wonder how many of us thought that at some point we would conclude, we do that by good works. I think when we read a command like that, a lot of people hastily assume that exact thing. That the way you keep yourself in the love of God is by performing things adequately. As most modern commentators assert, they don't argue that or demonstrate it from the text, namely. And that's the question, isn't it? One, why is that our default assumption? That if we're to keep ourselves in the love of God, it must mean by being better people. Maybe that's not your assumption, but I think it's probably uh, a nagging thought for most of us at some point as we consider texts like this. And then second, the question is, what does Jude actually say? Because he doesn't say that. <laughs> where, where in this little group of verses does he say, by getting yourself together, by doing all the right things, by measuring up to expectations. Where does he say that? He doesn't. And so Jude's actual words should probably chastise us a little bit for, for rushing headlong to our own strength as the means to accomplish this exhortation. The means that Jude outlined are actually building ourselves up in, in, on our faith, right? The foundation of Christ. Praying. And now we see waiting on God's mercy. And then he explicitly said that, that Christ's mercy, Christ's mercy, not, not something you do, but the mercy of Jesus. That is what results in everlasting life. Waiting 
on the mercy of Christ, which leads to everlasting life. None of the resources that Jude gave us rely on our own strength, but rest in the gracious means that God gives to his people. And so we see here that Jude finished his letter as he began. He started right at the outset by noting that the saints are those who are loved by the Father and kept, sovereignly preserved for Christ. Do you see that? God keeps you. And then Jude tells us to keep ourselves by leaning on the one who keeps us. Our part in keeping ourselves in God's love is not doing enough, an adequate amount of righteousness. Our part is faith, prayer, and waiting on the mercy of the Lord. The best way to keep a boat in the right place where it needs to be is not by running the engine endlessly, but to drop the anchor. The best way is not to make it work incessantly, but to tie it in the right place. And so with us, we do not keep ourselves in the love of God through endless striving, but by anchoring ourselves to the risen Christ. In contrast to the false teachers who invented their own religion, by claiming new revelations from God, those kept for Christ, kept by God for Christ, depend on what has once for all been delivered to the saints. Our resources to keep ourselves in the love of God all flow out of God's immense grace for us. And so we come to our final point, our response. That's right. <clears throat> Although the ways that we keep ourselves uh, in God's love, we've just considered those, all involve depending on what God has done for us in Christ, waiting on his mercy. Jude does then follow that by recording our proper response <clears throat> to the mercy that we have received. And that response is simply... To have mercy on those who cause even our very troubles. So whereas verses 20 and 21 tell what believers should be like in contrast to the false teachers, verses 22 and 23 tell what, what the response to those false teachers should be. And despite our natural inclinations to be angry, with those who lead us astray, who do wrong to us in various ways, Jude prompts God's people to be concerned about those people's relationship with Christ. Rather than responding in contempt, we are to be merciful and concerned about even those people who have caused our very troubles. So... 
Let's think about this text here, okay? Uh, the, the translation that we, we usually use um, kind of makes this a, a random bunch of, of instructions concerning a few different groups of people, right? Uh, to some, have mercy, save others, and on others, have, have mercy again. So it, it seems a bit disjointed, but the, the grammar just as easily lends itself to be about one group. Namely, those who are disagreeing and disputing. So I have, yeah, I don't like to do this very often, but, um, so on your sheet, uh, I've given you a, a, like a, a revised translation. Hopefully that's useful for you to have. Uh, so let me read this for you though. Further, so starting at verse 22, this is how I would expand this. There's a little bit of, of explanation built in, but I think that this is, is a good way to do it. Further, on the one hand, have mercy on those who cause our divisions by disputing. But on the other hand, save them, save them by snatching them from the fire and still have mercy on them with fear, despite hating even the garment that has been soiled by the flesh. So <clears throat> the ESV talks about those who doubt. Right, but but the word there for for those who doubt is is actually the same word from from back up in verse nine, where the devil was disputing about the body of Moses. So it's, it's the same word there, and I think within such a short letter, for such a specific word to appear, with sort of fairly different meanings would be unlikely. So I think that this exhortation here is about our need to have mercy upon those who are at variance with the church. Those who are disputing, those who are disagreeing. Namely, in this case, we're talking about the false teachers, right? The people who are causing the divisions, as Jude has just said. That exhortation, though, to have mercy on them is not a blank check for them to go do whatever they might please without something to balance that out. On the contrary, on the other hand, our responsibility as we have mercy on them is to try to save them by snatching them from the fire. They hang over the fire of judgment. And so Christians ought to work to pull them from it through the gospel. These are people in our midst, and so we should confront them with the truth. In contrast to the false teachers who participated even in the Lord's Supper, the love feasts, right, irreverently, without fear, verse 12, the mercy that Christians show to those who wrong is specifically with fear. Here in verse 22 and 23. Or, mercy that has, has reverence and respect for God. It is not mercy that allows the godless to continue in their ungodliness, but reverent mercy that exhorts the ungodly out of their sin back to the truth. We saw previously, um, we didn't read Zechariah 3 because we, we read it just uh, a few weeks ago together. But we saw previously how, how Jude had appealed to this uh, case in Zechariah 3, 1 to 5 of 
of God and the devil disputing, this confrontation between them. And he alludes to that again here. Zechariah is on your, on your sheet there to consult. So just as Joshua stood in, in filthy garments, but then God clothed Joshua in clean vestments, so too we are to hate how we stand before God stained by sin. And how others might be stained by sin too. Instead of longing, or instead of indulging our metaphorical garments stained by the flesh, by our sin, we need to long for righteousness before God. And Jude made clear that the way to do that, the way, the way to keep ourselves in the love of God, right? Is to wait on the mercy of Christ. To lean on the Savior. Only Christ's mercy results in everlasting life. As sinners, Christ has taken our filthy garments from us. He was clothed in our sin, dying for the transgressions that we have committed, bearing the curse of the law that was supposed to fall upon us. He wore our filthy garments at the cross. And He rose from the grave, though, because He lived the perfectly righteous life. He has that record of righteousness that we all need to stand before God. And as believers, Christ gives that robe of perfect righteousness to us so that we stand before God spotless and blameless. Whereas Christ wore our filthy garments and died for those things at the cross, He gives us His perfection. He clothes us in His perfect righteousness that God might see us as His treasured children. And so, if you're a believer, that that is you. And as a believer, Christians are then people who know what it means to need and to receive Mercy. We are not boats who know how to stay in place. We are boats who are tied to a strong anchor. And so we wait with expectation upon Christ's mercy in our times of need. He has won mercy for us, and therefore we can depend upon Him to give it to us. But because we know what it is like to need and to receive mercy, as Christians we are also remade to be able to extend that mercy to others. We are not tied to a flimsy anchor. Our anchor is strong enough to share. And the church can be the hardest place at times, I know, to put up with those who cause divisions and dispute. Now, maybe that's significant. Maybe that's very minor. We're thankful here that I I think 
disagreements are very minor and, and they don't become problems um, by and large. We can see, though, right, how, how oftentimes very serious matters are at stake in our disagreements. And that's very difficult to bear with people. At other times, though, we are just very set on our preferences and what we want. Now, the thing is, regardless of how extreme our disputes might be, those who wait upon Christ's mercy are called to give mercy to those who are at variance with us, those who dispute. Right? What does it mean to be merciful in this case? Well, just like Jude was saying, it doesn't mean give people a blank check to do whatever they want. And at the same time, typically, we cannot convince people uh, through anger. If we have an outburst at someone, they're probably not going to share our opinion. That's not the most persuasive way. And so being merciful, whatever it may be, means being lovingly persuasive committed to the truth, explaining it in kindness, reasoning together as Christians, perhaps at times more pointedly over serious things, right? There's a spectrum here. Maybe we disagree about music. Maybe we disagree about the best Bible translations. Maybe we disagree about something seriously theological. Maybe something genuinely essential is at stake, as was the case with these false teachers in Jude. In all cases, it doesn't matter. We are still to have mercy in reverence for God. Looking to win those in the church to the truth. And I just think that we need to remember that that isn't disconnected from our position in Christ. We we do not have... We don't have mercy on people in order to pry mercy from Christ. That's not how it works. This isn't a condition. It's not be merciful so that Christ will respond to you in mercy. You've received the mercy of Christ as a believer. You're waiting upon it. And Christ's mercy has been so richly poured out upon you that it is easily able able to overflow to others. We wait to see Christ in His mercy and so we know what it means to be those filled with mercy. And as we look around us to those who are struggling, to those at variance with us, we pray that we will all be waiting on that mercy together. Let's pray. Father God, we are glad that the way to keep ourselves in the love of God is not through our best efforts, but indeed by trusting in the Savior, building on the foundation of faith, (coughs) praying, waiting on the mercy of Christ. We ask that you would help us to stand those resources on our hearts that we would feel enthused 
about keeping ourselves in the love of God. We are not boats without anchors. We have a strong anchor, Jesus Christ, and we are tied to him. And so help us rejoice at that, that this is not a daunting task. But indeed, you keep us for Christ, even as you exhort us to keep ourselves. Help us to be merciful in times of disagreement, of dispute, however serious it may be. Help us to be merciful in those things. And help us in that. As, as we do that, God, show, show those who need mercy what mercy is, that they might come to Jesus. We do pray, even here and now, that you would plant us in these truths. That we would be committed to the faith. That we would labor in prayer. And that we would find ourselves waiting on the mercy of Christ. Because it results in eternal life. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.